Grace and peace to you, beloved, in our Lord Jesus Christ. I bring you greetings with, from my fellow pastors and all the saints at Emmanuel Baptist Church. We are praying for you and thankful for your witness here in Roseville and our common cause in the mission of the Lord Jesus. And I even knew this morning when I came and saw the announcement for this evening, an evening without Brett, I was in the right place. <laughs> I've already texted Brett and told him, you know, sometimes we all just need an evening without Brett, brother. Yeah, Brett is a dear brother of ours. He has been one of our ministry interns, and so, of course, I take credit for whatever you see in him that's encouraging, and whatever critiques come up this evening, we have absolutely nothing to do with. But we come this morning confessing the faith together, and another reason we rejoice in common cause is we both confess and subscribe to the Second London Confession of Faith. And my uh, aim this morning in our meditation on the Word of God is considering why that is biblical and why it's actually absolutely necessary that we confess the faith according to Scripture. Let me lead us in a prayer of illumination as we consider the Word of God that we have just heard. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless you for gathering your saints again on your day to honor and glorify your name and to build us up in our most holy faith. We pray, our Father, you would be with us, that you who have brought all things into being by speaking, and you who caused the light of the Lord Jesus and your glory and his face to shine in each heart, we pray you would work again by your spirit this morning to edify your church, to bring those outside your son to yourself in faith, and to glorify yourself through the ministry of your word. In Jesus' name we ask this, amen. When I was a new Christian now, almost 30 years ago, uh, my pastor at the time held out his Bible one Sunday morning and said, this is my creed. Of course, I joined everyone else in saying, amen. Scripture alone is the word of God to us. But over a matter of time, even as I came on staff eventually as a youth ministry intern, I came to discover that this same pastor rejected the inerrancy of the Bible he rejected the Bible's teaching on sex and marriage and even denied the exclusivity of Christ and the coming future judgment. And I learned by experience what is the testimony of all church history, that the cry that the Bible alone is your creed is what the heretics say. That was the rally cry of liberalism in the 19th century in the 1800s. Uh, there are many examples of this. The fountainhead, though, would be Alexander Campbell, who led the so-called Restoration Movement. And Campbell said this, I have endeavored to read the scriptures as though no one had read them before me. And to this day, Campbell's lineage, the International Churches of Christ, maintain cultic practices, believe in baptismal regeneration, that salvation can be lost, and other heterodoxies. Campbell wasn't alone in that time in rejecting everything before him and trying to read the Bible in a vacuum. Another group had the same commitment, and they published a journal called Studies in the Scriptures. And that's how the Jehovah's Witnesses were born, with that commitment. Samuel Miller, who was the Princeton theologian of this era, was right when he said this, the most zealous opposers of creeds have generally been heretics. Now, why is that true? Is there anything wrong with the Bible? No, may it never be. But there's a lot wrong with us, and that's the point. 
James Bannerman, who wrote the Magisterial Church of Christ in the 1800s, said this, A man may accept as the rule of his faith the same inspired books as yourself. While he rejects every important article of the faith you find in these books, you realize that a Jewish rabbi, a Catholic priest, a Mormon elder, and I, a Baptist pastor, can get in a room, and when they ask who believes the Bible, we will all say yes. And yet we all mean something radically different from that. And that's the point. So from the very beginning, the church has sought to clarify what scripture means by what it says. You find this early on in the book of Acts. Just take Acts chapter 8 with Philip evangelizing the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember this story? The Ethiopian was reading Isaiah. And in verse 30 of chapter 8, Philip is literally spirited to him, and he asks the eunuch, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch replied, how can I unless someone guides me? Notice Philip does not run alongside the eunuch and say, oh, good, he's reading the Bible. He's good. Leave him alone. No, he needs to grasp its meaning. He needs to understand it rightly. And the Ethiopian recognized himself, I need a guide. And so Luke tells us in Acts 8.35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Notice Philip didn't stay in Isaiah 53, though that's a great passage to explain the gospel in. Philip started there and he moved into the entirety of God's revelation in Christ and expounded the whole gospel. That is the basic impulse, beloved, for creeds and confessions down through the history of the church. How do we guide and how do we guard the truth that God has revealed to us in his word? How do we guard the gospel that has been once for all authoritatively revealed in the Bible? And that's what the Apostle Paul is pressing here to his apostolic delegate Timothy, the missionary in Ephesus at the end of his life. When 2 Timothy was written, one older writer said Christianity trembled on the verge of annihilation, humanly speaking. The Apostle Paul, as we heard in verse 15 of chapter 1, everyone in Asia has turned away from him. Those are churches he planted, and they've abandoned him because he's in prison as a Roman criminal on trumped-up charges of treason for preaching the gospel. Paul is facing his own eminent death as a martyr for the gospel. The churches he's planted have abandoned him and turned on him. Things are going awry. And so what is Paul's uppermost concern? It is that, that deposit in verse 12. That pattern of sound words in verse 13. That it's guarded in verse 14. And moving into chapter 2, verse 2, not only it's guarded, but it's guarded by passing it along to faithful men who will keep passing it along in the great relay of the gospel until the Lord Jesus comes for his bride. Our burden, our mission under Christ, is not only to preserve the words of Scripture, that is, copies of the Bible, but it is also to guard and protect its true meaning from corruption and decay and error, so that what the Bible means by what it says is passed down faithfully from generation to generation until the Lord Jesus comes for us. 
This is what the Reformers meant in the Reformation with the cry, sola scriptura. It means scripture alone is our final authority, the last court of appeal. But it never meant me and scripture alone, or that I alone can decide what scripture means. So we need to recover sola scriptura as subscribing to the faith the church confesses down through the ages. And I want us to make three observations this morning from this portion of God's word. I want us to notice first how Christ guards his church. How does Christ guard the church? And then secondly, how the church guards Christ's word. How does the church guard the word of Christ? And then finally, how the church gives the word away. How do we give it away? Let's look first at how Christ guards his church and start at the beginning of our passage in chapter 1. How does Christ guard the church? And you'll notice as we read in verse 12 that Paul is in this cauldron of controversy and suffering and opposition, but he is astoundingly unashamed and confident. He's convinced, he says, that Christ is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And Literally, hear this phrase, what has been entrusted to me, you could translate as guard my deposit for that day. And that's the key to understand the the rhythm, the, the thread that runs through this entire passage is that phrase, deposit. It shows up again in verse 14, the good deposit. Entrust and deposit are synonyms, so you could think of it as deposit or entrustment. And it appears again as a verb in chapter 2, verse 2, entrust to faithful men or deposit with faithful men. And this is all referring to, back in chapter 1, verse 12, the gospel. Paul's revealed testimony of the good news of the Lord Jesus. That this truth is to be guarded and deposited from generation to generation. And so Paul, sitting in prison, awaiting to be beheaded, as people are turning away from him, has nothing but confidence. Because he looks down the halls, as it were, of history, and he remembers the promise of Christ to his church. And so he is confident because he remembers that Christ said Christ will build his church, and that he said in the last command of Matthew 28, I will be with you always to the very end of the age, So that must mean, as Paul is reasoning in his prison cell, that must mean that Christ is able to guard his gospel. Christ will guard his church regardless of how bad things look right now. And they looked pretty bad. Even with error and heresy and strife embroiling the church and Paul's own impending death, he stands back and sings, as it were, a mighty fortress is our God. Christ will guard his church. This is a great help to us in our culture as we tend to be anti-historical. We believe often the best is yet to come, or as Henry Ford once said, history is more or less bunk. But one of the great checks against that bias in our culture is the confidence that not only will Christ never leave his church, that must mean Christ has never left his church. Too often many Christians think of the history of the church as though the Spirit of God came down on the day of Pentecost and then he left the earth until Martin Luther showed up in the 16th century. (laughs) 
But Martin Luther didn't believe that, and the Bible doesn't teach it. Christ promised to be with his church always. And even more, Christ promised to give, as in passages like Ephesians 4, to gift his church with teachers and preachers who will preserve the faith from Scripture. So at this distance that we are at from his ascension, we ought to expect that we can stand on wide and broad shoulders who have been looking into and passing on the meaning of the Bible. And we can. And the reformers believed that in the Reformation as they sought to reform the church. The Reformation in the 16th century did not happen because the reformers realized that everything before them had been wrong. No, they realized that everything around them had horribly departed from everything before them. Popes were taking payment from people to pay for new buildings in Rome. And they were promising them a reduction in time and purgatory if they put their coins in the coffers to build them fancy new buildings. But then what happened in the Reformation is men like Luther and Calvin and others went into scripture and to church history and said, you know what you don't see? You don't see purgatory. You don't see indulgences. And you know what else you don't see? You don't see popes. None. And in the infallibility that the popes claimed in these decrees is not present in history either, nor in scripture. Cyril of Jerusalem in the fourth century said this, concerning the divine and holy mysteries of the faith, not even a casual statement must be delivered without the holy scriptures. It is the scripture alone that is our final authority. Everything is rooted in God's word. So the Reformation was a renewal it was a recovery of what had been believed by the church down through the ages, but that had been horribly, horribly forgotten. The, the ironic truth is, is what sparked the Reformation is that Christianity in Rome had ceased to be Catholic, ceased to be universal. Roman Catholic is one of the most ironic and oxymoronic labels ever created. You can't be universal if you're tied to a culture and city in Rome. You have ceased to be Catholic. And so the formers realized, hey, the pope isn't Catholic. And turns out there's no popes in the history of the church. The church has ceased to rely on the wisdom of those who have gone before us, who taught these things in scripture, and who codified it in creeds. And instead, we have become bound up with men rooted in selfish ambition and twisting God's word to their own selfish ends. And beloved, the fact that we ever needed a reformation, and we still do, down through the ages, is a reminder of how the Bible can be used independently and selfishly for godless ends. There's really no end to the corruption that we can bring to God's word. In fact, the two main rules to reading the Bible is recognizing first, this is the word of God, and second, I am not the first person to read it. The Reformation reminds us this, and it also reminds us of Christ's faithfulness to his word, just as Paul talks about in this passage. He is able to guard the good deposit until the day of his return. Our hope and confidence is not that Christians always get things right. Our hope and confidence is not that the church will always be pure in this life or has always been because it hasn't. Our confidence is that Christ will always make everything right. In fact, the Bible says he's making all things new. Corruption and confusion 
exist in visible Christianity because one of our first confessions is that we are sinners. We sin. But Christ has come. And Christ has lived perfectly and died vicariously on behalf of sinners. So that all who trust in the Lord Jesus and put their whole confidence and hope in his name are returned to God and forgiven and his perfect life is credited to them while the judgment sinners deserves is put on him on that cross outside the Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. So that by his resurrection and ascension, all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and call on his name are rescued. They're saved. They're returned to God with the hope of being with him forever, and in this life, by the presence of his same spirit, are being renewed into the image of Christ slowly, being conformed again, not just to know the Bible, but to know what it means by its, what it says, and confess its true meaning with the church down through the ages. And Christ does this, teaching his church and guarding his church in his presence, so that the church would guard his word. And that's what we see secondly. I want us to know secondly, not just that Christ guards his church, but the church guards his word. Now, Timothy ministered in Ephesus as heresies were already cropping up. If you turn with me to chapter 2, we didn't read, read this portion. It's just past the portion that was read. But in verses 17 to 18, we find two homeboys, Hymenaeus and Philetus. And these huckleberries are in our Bible because they were heretics. And their heresy was saying in verse 18 of chapter 2 that the resurrection had already happened. Now what is likely happened is they took the truth that every Christian indwelt by the Spirit of God, that is every Christian has really been raised spiritually in Christ. Our old man has died, we have new life, and we have been raised in him. That is absolutely true spiritually. And they probably took that spiritual reality and put an ancient Greek pagan spin on it to say the resurrection in toto has already happened. That is, there is no future bodily resurrection. This is it incorporating pagan ideas into the scriptural revelation. But just think about that. That means if you could sit Hymenaeus and Philetus down and you had an evening without them, <laughs> and if someone to ask, well, does Hymenaeus and Philetus believe in the resurrection? What would they say? Yes. But as with everything, the devil is in literally the details and the affirmations and specific denials. You see, what false teachers have often done down to this day is they will take the words of Scripture, but they will use them as a cover for their own error and heresy. Or what they do is they take God's word, but they use the devil's dictionary, and they give that spin and meaning on it. That is why no creed but the Bible is always a cover for heresy, because the words of Scripture are being parroted like resurrection but what you mean by resurrection and what the truth means by resurrection may be two very different things. And that's what you see going on here. And so Paul charges Timothy in chapter 1, verses 13 through 12 through 14, is the pattern of the apostles must be guarded. It must be preserved and protected. And there's two ways we see that here. 
The church guards Christ's word by confessing the faith and believing their confession. Let's see first confessing the faith. Notice verse 12, the deposit that Paul said Christ is able to guard is, verse 14, what Timothy himself is to guard. So who guards it? God or Timothy? Yes, exactly. And this deposit, this entrustment, is specifically in verse 13, the pattern of sound words, or you may know it by the old King James translation, the form of sound words. That is, there's a model, a standard, a a, a form, a reliable plumb line. That's what we call orthodoxy. That's what we call the faith, the truth. It's the very thing that Paul summarized just above this in verses 8 to 10, where Paul writes in verse 8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel. And then Paul will go on and explain in short compass what that is. Verse 9, The power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing or epiphany of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So you see here, Paul describes the testimony of the gospel in short summary, and it is about God's sovereign eternal purpose and grace. His eternal love to send his son, which speaks of Christ's pre-existence as the second person of the triune God, and speaks of his bodily appearing. And it speaks of eternal life bodily that will come in him. And Paul says these sound words, verse 13, this pattern, this summary, this truth of all that has been revealed in scripture and what has been taught by me, use this to judge every other teacher. When you hear Hymenaeus and Philetus and other huckleberries that they train and they get into the pulpits of Ephesus, you measure what they say by this pattern. This is the mold by which we judge whether teaching is true or false. What's significant here is Paul does not tell Timothy, just make sure you have certain passages of Scripture memorized. No, Timothy needs a summary of doctrine. He needs to have a standard by which the meaning of Scripture is to be judged and teachers are to be evaluated and considered what he'd heard from Paul. And this is what we might call the creedal impulse or creedal instinct in the Bible. It's why even others like Carl Truman say this is why confessions are a biblical imperative because of these passages here to restate and summarize what the whole of Scripture means by what it says. And they're really, once you see this and put these lenses on, it's all over your New Testament. One passage, for example, that is the most basic and many of us would be familiar with probably is Romans 10, verses 9 to 10. Remember Romans 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be what? saved. Do you realize that is a confessional statement? There is a public confession, a doctrinal summary of the New Testament. And what is it? Jesus is Lord. 
not Caesar, not anyone else. Jesus is Lord. That is the most basic, reduced, succinct summary of what a Christian confesses. If you don't confess that, you are not a Christian. That's what Christians confess. And it's a summary of, in the end, of all that the Old and New Testament teach. What do they teach? That Jesus Christ is Lord. That's it at the end of the day. It's a summary of Scripture in fresh words and preserves what Scripture means. Jesus cannot be just a rabbi. He's Lord. But that's not all. We don't just confess Jesus is Lord. What? You must believe in your heart the truth of that confession. And what is the reality of Jesus' lordship that you must believe to actually mean what you say? That he's been raised from the dead. That is the linchpin, the exclamation point, the underline, the guarantee of Christ's lordship. You can say Jesus is Lord all you want, but if you do not believe that he has been raised from the dead, those are just empty words. They mean nothing. So you see, we make a public confession of what is true, and the meaning of that must be personally believed in each heart. It is confessing the faith and believing the confession, and that's how we guard it. That's what Paul charges Timothy. In a crisis, or even if we're just late in our homes, we might tell those around us, don't just stand there, do something. I find myself often telling that to my children on Sunday mornings. But in the crisis of his day, Paul tells Timothy, don't just do something, stand there. Stay on this pattern of sound words. Hold fast to what has been passed on to you. As Paul's about to leave the scene, he's about to die. To be sure, there's a structure in place. He wants this pattern, this standard of sound words to be passed on from one generation to the next. And this has continued in the church for now, going on 2,000 years down to this day. And our confessions have gotten longer and more elaborate than Jesus is Lord because the errors and heresies we've encountered along the way keep requiring further restatement of what the Bible means by what it says and bringing clarification to them. It's true, as it's often been said, that heresy precedes orthodoxy. That is, you have to elaborate what is true as new errors crop up. We're watching that happen right now. You used to be able to just say, Marriage is only between a man and a woman. But you now have to say marriage is between a biological male who has an X and Y chromosome with a biological female who has two X chromosomes and that alone. We have to have more restatements about what marriage is and even what sex means. And all this is because, why? New error has cropped up. And so we have to clarify and be clear of what we say. And the church benefits from this process down through the ages, because we now have categories of thought and words to use to guard what the Bible means by what it says. If I showed up this morning and I said to you, well, you know, the Trinity isn't biblical. The word's not even in the Bible. You would probably all have red flags waving in your minds. Some of you might actually rightly get up and walk out. But you didn't get that from your quiet time last Tuesday, did you? You didn't read a passage and thought, you know, Trinity, that's a good way to describe the ontological eternal existence of God. No, in the early centuries, the church had to explain Scripture. 
So they took common words from even Greek philosophy and they repurposed them with biblical meaning. So they took terms like ousia and hypostasis to refer to the being of God and, and homoousios, that the son is consubstantial with the father, not a different being, but the second person of the triune being of God. The church gave us grammar to talk about God so that when we talked about what scripture says, we also preserved what it means. In the medieval era, the average length of construction of a cathedral was 300 years. It takes a long time to build something that will last. And many of them stand to this day. But when we reject the creedal stone structures that the church has guarded down through the ages, and we build our own structures in our own lifetime, you know what happens? They get bulldozed by the time of our grandchildren's life. They don't last. So we never approach scripture as though it fell from the sky last week. We read it with the saints who preceded us, and we learn from their fights so that we can faithfully pass on what Scripture means. Does this mean that our confession has more authority than the Bible? Absolutely not. But it does have more authority than your and my interpretation of the Bible. And that's the whole point. It is to guard us from ourselves. We guard the faith by confessing it and believing our confession. Notice again in verse 13 of chapter 1 that Timothy is not only to follow this pattern of sound words, but he is to do it in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. We don't only preserve the form of words, it's the forge of our faith and confidence. Or as Paul will tell the bondservants in Titus 2 verse 10, adorn, put on, the doctrine of God, our Savior. Live in it. Walk in it. Your confession is clothes that you live in to guide your life and what you believe and how you are to live before God. The great historian Yaroslav Pelikan once quipped, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. A pattern of tradition is here what Paul is commending, not traditionalism. And too often the two are confused as though if we have an old confession, even all the way back in 1689, well, that's stultifying and insincere and unspiritual. But beloved, if we, if we reject the treasures of the past, we will only imprison ourselves into the present. Instead, we protect and we pass on the pattern of sound words, not as mere emblems, not as papers in a drawer we have on file somewhere, but as a living and functional confession in our communion, and in our life as Christians. If you're like me, you don't understand the concept of the guest towel in your bathroom. Uh, it's a towel that my wife has in our bathroom, but it never must be used. It must be left alone. It's just admired, apparently, for the wonderful guest that will come by one day and wash his hands and face with that beautiful towel that I'm not to touch. But that's not the point of a confession. So our confessions are not guest towels. We don't leave them just as something to admire and look at. You, you see how clean and nice and fluffy that towel is? No. Our confession never negates prayer, never negates use, seeking Christ on the basis of them. So, so the second London Baptist confession is not a guest towel. It's the family towel. 
It's what we use to dry our hands and wipe up our messes and wash our faces and all by the spirit and power of God. Is a lifeless confessionalism possible? Of course. But so is a zealous heresy. And neither are inevitable. No. Scripture calls us to embrace what we confess and to live with it. The greatest way to believe the confession is to use it, to teach it. Some of our practices down at IBC is we teach our catechism during our prayer meeting because confessing old words and seeking God now are not inconsistent with one another. In fact, it empowers it. We survey the confession annually for new folks so that they understand the pattern of sound words and we can join together to guard the faith that scripture gives us. Now, plenty of sound churches have a confession buried in a filing cabinet somewhere or posted on a website, and it means almost nothing. It ceased to be a source of comfort and consolation and courage, but it robs the church of the riches of the faith, and it cancels out our mission to guard Christ's word until he comes for us. And that brings us thirdly and finally to how we guard that word we do it by giving it away. The church guards the word of Christ by giving it away. The gospel is the only thing you preserve by passing it on. And that's what we see as we move into chapter 2. The starting point of this entrustment we saw in verses 12, 13, and 14, that deposit that Paul revealed and that Timothy is to guard. And then notice it is in chapter 2, verse 2, what they heard in the presence of many witnesses that's to be entrusted to faithful men. That is, this public objective summary of Scripture is to be passed along to others. And this is a wonderful reminder here as Paul refers to teaching in the presence of many witnesses that the truth of Christ is never something that's been hidden in a corner. It's public, it's objective, it's examinable, it can be challenged and defended. Christians never say, like other false religions, just trust me, never. It's always been public and verifiable. And Paul now entrusts that public teaching to Timothy to pass along. It's to succeed from him and down through the ages. He's to give it to faithful men who will be able to teach others. And that's significant. Notice that Paul is referring to his deposit here in chapter verse 2, verse 2, when he ta- tells Timothy to pass the faith along. He does not tell him, just give these men Bibles and some principles of interpretation and let's see what they come up with. He does not want them to be creative. That's actually never been our charge. It is to pass along what's been passed down and to keep with that relay of the faith until Christ comes for his church. This is, again, the impulse of our confessions. And notice who's primarily charged here in chapter 2, verse 2. It is faithful men who are able to teach. Now, those should function in our minds like hyperlinks back to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 where Paul uses these very phrases, able to teach and faithful, describing pastors, qualified elders in the church, the overseer, the pastor, or the elders, the three titles for the same office. They're to be faithful, and they're to be able to pass on what has been passed down, down through the ages, according to Scripture. 
Paul has in mind ministers of the word who are faithful in character and have facility to teach the truth and to give it away. And that's what able to teach basically means. Able to teach does not mean able to keep a congregation engaged and entertained for at least 50 minutes. Certainly, Hymenaeus and Philetus were able to do that or they wouldn't be a danger. If they were boring and obscure, there would be no means of mentioning them. They must have had some facility of communication and and motivation or they wouldn't be a threat to the church. No, able to teach does not mean able to be an engaging communicator. Able to teach means able to faithfully pass along the truth of God according to Scripture to others so that it's preserved and it's passed down to future generations. In 1872, Charles Hodge made the famous quip that a new idea never originated in Princeton Seminary. Now, that's something funny, you think, for an academic to say, but it's completely biblical. It's something that you want to put even as a banner around the pulpit of your church. No new ideas welcome here. We're here for the old. And that should be the greatest compliment and encouragement to the faithful pastors and shepherds that nothing new was ever heard among them. I pray my congregation can say one day, when I am long gone, he said nothing new. Amen. And in our, in other words, one of the reasons that you want as a church to subscribe a confession, and even now in this pivotal time of transition in your life as a church, one of the reasons you can be thankful for a historic confession is to protect you from a new pastor's new ideas. That's how they work. Or as I'll tell my church, one of the reasons we subscribe to an old confession is to protect you from me and my ideas. That we would be faithfully holding on to what has been believed together. You see, when historic confessions and creeds are rejected, they aren't refused because a church has no standard of teaching. Everyone has a standard of teaching. Absolutely everyone. But sadly, what sometimes churches do, sometimes unwittingly, is they make the standard a single man. There are many churches that reject the Pope in Rome only to install their own. And a confession helps us not to do that. It saves us, as it were, from ourselves. And Paul exemplifies it in the remainder of this passage here, even in chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Paul is exemplifying by giving another confession here, and it begins in verse 11 with the saying, is trustworthy. Now, Paul uses that phrase five times in his letters to Timothy and Titus, and this is the fourth time it shows up. And significantly, each time Paul refers to a trustworthy saying, or this saying is faithful, he takes a concept or a phrase that had appeared earlier in Scripture, usually from the Gospels and the Lord Jesus, and he employs it in a formulaic, creedal way. Now, Paul is either repeating what the churches were already saying, or he's creating them himself. But in either case, the same point is true. Here, Paul gives four lines about our life in Christ. He says the saying is trustworthy, verse 11. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, this, these four couplets are all about endurance. 
And they came up in verse 10, where Paul talks about his own endurance and why he endures everything for the sake of Christ and what he's encouraging, therefore, Timothy and others in Ephesus to endure themselves. That's likely rooted in the statement of Christ in Matthew 10, that the one who endures to the end will be saved. And that first line that Paul gives here in verse 11 is a direct citation of his own letter to the Romans, chapter 6, verse 8, if we have died with him. If we have died with Christ, we will believe that we will live with him. So you see what Paul is doing here is he is gathering up truths and statements elsewhere in Scripture and putting them together in a formulaic, memorizable, memorable fashion that the church would hold fast to the meaning of Scripture clearly summarized in this confessional statement. So it is a warning and encouragement about our past in verse 11. If you've died with Christ, you will live with him. If you are in Christ, you are his forever. A warning, excuse me, a reminder of the Christian past. And then it is a encouragement about our present. Verse 12, if we endure, we will reign with him. That is continue, persevere in the faith. Hold fast to Christ, or as it says in the letter to the Hebrews, if we neglect so great a salvation, what will become of us? Hold fast to Christ. But then there's a warning at the end of verse 12 of future judgment. If we deny him, he will also deny us. There is no hope outside of Christ, none at all. And then it ends with this wonderful reminder of the superintending grace of God. Verse 13, if we are faithless, That is, we have moments of failure. Have you ever failed as a Christian? If we are faithless, who is faithful? He is. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. Because why? We have already died with him. We are his. So even in that moments of faithlessness, he is faithful, and he will never deny those who are his in Christ. You see here, Paul is giving a faithful saying, a confession. And notice he's doing it in the context of, again, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who are saying the resurrection has already happened and it doesn't matter. And Paul, in the midst of that heresy, is dropping a confession to remember. And you could spend just a few minutes and memorize that, right? And it's the whole Christian life. The whole Christian life is summarized right there and will hold you fast when Philetus gets into the pulpit and starts spinning yarns about the resurrection already happening. And you can remember, no, that pattern of sound words. You see, the church has always been pressured to reinterpret scripture according to the whims of its own day. The meaning of scripture, therefore, is held together by our creedal and confessional statements, by our own confession that helps us. It gives us a firm place to stand in the midst of the storms and the winds blowing around us. You know, that was confirmed for me poignantly on June 28, 2015. That Sunday, that was two days after the Supreme Court ruled in Obergefeld versus Hodges and gave same-sex couples the so-called right of marriage. Before our evening service, as I was getting into our church building there in Midtown Sacramento, a reporter from NBC was there with his station, with his van, and their camera, and they wanted to speak to the pastor. I went over with a couple deacons, and I asked what I could do, and he he said, you know, we hear some churches actually don't agree with the Supreme Court ruling. I'd wonder if you'd comment. Now, I wasn't born yesterday, 
and I didn't want my church building burned down on Monday. And so I said, no, I'm not going to be going on your camera and to give a comment. But I gave him this reply. You know, our understanding of what the Bible says about marriage was actually written down in 1677, and nothing the Supreme Court said Friday or any other court will ever say will alter that confession. We believe the same thing that we've been saying for actually centuries about what marriage is and what it is not. So you can know very clearly that it's not we who've moved, you've moved. We've been standing in the same place for a long, long time. And the reason, one reason I was able to say that is because we subscribe down through the ages as you do with the same confession of faith according to scripture. And this is what sola scriptura means, that the Bible alone is our absolute final authority, and we hold fast to it with the church down through the ages, confessing the same faith as them until Christ comes for us. Spurgeon referred to our confession as an ancient document and a most excellent epitome of the things most surely believed among us. And then later, in the midst of the controversies of Spurgeon's own day, he once wrote this, and I often think of this statement. He says, we who have had the gospel passed to us by martyr hands dare not trifle with it, nor should we sit by and hear it denied by traitors. And Spurgeon went on and said this, there are ages yet to come, brothers. If the Lord does not speedily appear, there will come another generation and another, and all these generations will be injured if we are not faithful to God and his truth today. Most of our creeds and confessions were forged in times of great strife, and they've been passed down to us literally by martyr hands. And we don't remember all the upheavals or the political turmoil in the fourth century in Rome, but we have the Nicene Creed. And we don't remember the turmoil of the English war, but we stand in the Westminster tradition and the Second London Confession of Faith. And so even as we consider the great culture wars of our own day that we must engage and be faithful and remember, there are ages yet to come. And we must be concerned, as it were, about the community we leave our children, but we, I think, ought to be even more concerned about the confession we pass on to them. Because what will we have gained if we preserve the community but our children and grandchildren are heretics. Not very much. So we hold fast, not just to the absolute authority of Scripture, but confessing with the church what Scripture means by what it says, and he is able to guard us in it until Christ returns for us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word and the encouragement we find in it. We would pray that our Savior, your Son, the only Lord, Jesus Christ, would guard the faith he's given us to guard and to give away. Help us to faithfully not just hold fast to it, but pass it along to those who are faithful, that they would pass it along. And we pray that the relay of the truth of your word would not be vanished from this earth or from even among us until your Son returns again. Hold us fast, Father, and give us strength by your spirit to hold fast your word and to confess it faithfully with all the saints until all of us are together enrolled on high, singing your praises forever. 
Until that great day, we pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen.